Welcome to an informed live radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHD TV. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, and with me is Javier Figueroa. Hello, Javier. Hello, Bernadette. How are you doing today? Oh, you know, <laughs> enjoying that there's a little sunshine coming out right now. Yeah, that, that's good. Uh, here it's clouding up, so we might got some rain coming to Tennessee. Uh, but spring, you know, gotta love spring and life. And and Javier, you know, when things are going crazy, going out and walking outside in the woods, in nature, hearing the birds, seeing the squirrels, going about their life as they have for millennia, millennia. putting human beings and other silliness in perspective um, can be very good. Um, it, Human beings have done some really crazy things lately. And you were just saying before we came on the air that something you heard about something in Germany. What did yes. you hear in Germany? Germany has quite, quietly changed its Infection Protection Act. Uh, there was no mention of it in the newspapers and there was no public knowledge of it. In paragraph 21 about vaccines, in the case of a vaccination mandated on the basis of this law, or in case of one publicly recommended by the highest state health authority, or in case of a vaccination in accordance with Section 17A of the Soldiers Acts, vaccines may be used that contain microorganisms which can be excreted by the vaccinated person and subsequently ingested by other individuals. The fundamental right to physical slash bodily integrity is restricted in such cases. Wow. So that's why there has not been a parliamentary vote on mandatory vaccination in Germany. Because it's now, is this, is no it law? Is it like, do they have like, like we have like some sort of. They changed the uh, Infection Protection Act. So this was done basically as a, 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 um, an administrative uh, vote on an existing law. So wow. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the incremental changes that, you know, you do it quietly because you're not introducing a new uh, bill, you're just changing an existing one. So it's just this constant creeping up. And the fact that they actually say that, you know, that contains microorganisms that, which can be excreted, that means that they know that there's something replicated, replicating in the recipient, and that it will be released by the body at some point, which potentially could uh, enter another person. So, I've never heard such language. Well, that's because it was specific for uh, the uh, the Pfizer and Moderna, which they know that the uh, the viral particle, not the viral particles, but the um, that the the proteins can be shed. And mm -hmm. again, the definition of microorganism is depending on you know what definition they use can be very broad. And include a, a spike protein, just that one exactly. bit of it. Wow! But again. Basically, yeah. physical body integrity is restricted. Yeah, so more and more it's coming down to every human being on this planet needs to stay alert, educate everybody around them, and just be prepared to defend yeah. yourself yeah. and um, and just say no, you know. 
Um, Yeah, it's happening everywhere. And one of the first things I want to share here before we get to our first guest um, in the United States and elsewhere, we now have, um, well, the the FDA went ahead and I'll just go ahead and show it. Let me just go ahead and do this here. I recorded a segment earlier this week with Dr. Paul Thomas that, you know, often I'll do like a 10 or 15 minute segment on his show, but he wasn't going to be able to air this um, quickly. So we decided to put it on my show today because it's so important. So I'll just go ahead and do this and get it going. And um, oh, wait a minute. I apologize to everybody here. Let me let me do that again because I don't recall that I clicked the little button that says that you can share the sound. Oh, share audio. I did. Okay. <laughs> if you don't, if you click that little button, technology does not work for you. Here we go. All right. Welcome, Bernadette. Against the wind, Doctors and Science Under Fire. You've got some really hot off the press information people need to know about treatment, treatment of kids, and what's going on in that whole arena. So can't wait to hear what you've got to share. Yeah, thank you. So this this is really big, and we're just going to start with a little bit of information and let your viewers know that more information is coming. Um, Be sure to check informedchoicewa.org. There will be a post created with a lot of information. You can go explore information you can share so that you can be the news and make sure parents know what they need to know. Um, so the FDA has now added um, to the licensed product remdesivir, the only licensed product to treat COVID-19. It's still underneath the PREP Act, Dr. Paul. It's still considered a countermeasure. So I'm not an attorney, but everything I read, it looks as if this product is still fully shielded from liability by the federal government under the PREP Act. But the federal government now has authorized the use of this product, approved the use of this product for children as young as 28 days old Mm. and weighing seven pounds. So this is the very controversial product, remdesivir, also known as Velcury. So I want to start, Dr. Paul, with um, sharing with your viewers, this is the latest CDC information. And for the entire span of COVID-19 in the United States from January 4th, 2020 to April 16th, 2022, in the age group zero to four years, there have been 386 reported deaths. We don't know if that's tested PCR positive or from the disease, right? There's all that gray area. There's most COVID deaths. uh, They have not distinguished whether they were from COVID or with COVID. So, So these numbers are probably hugely inflated as far as the actual deaths caused by COVID. Yes. And then between um, ages 5 and 18, there have been 781. And of course, no matter what caused these children to pass away, every child's death is mourned. You know, we don't want any child to die of COVID. We don't want any child to die of lack of proper treatment for COVID. 
Um, or do we want anyone to die from vaccine injury or exactly. injury from dangerous medications? Right. But we want your viewers to understand the scope of what's going on. There is not a huge problem with children and there are effective treatments available that you don't have to resort to this. Um, so the COVID-19 uh, update, FDA approves first COVID-19 uh, children um, for young children. This is the approval of the this remdesivir. Approval of the remdesivir, and so then we share have, with us uh, what wanna, they base that on. Yes, that is really important. So this is Gilead's own homepage we're looking at right here. They based it first of all on adult studies, and said because the course of um, COVID is similar in children as adults that those studies apply, and one pediatric study, which is not yet complete. It's phase two, three study that is not set to be complete until 2023. There were only 53 children so far in that study. And it's very concerning uh, what they found out. Overall, 38 patients, 72% of them experienced adverse effects. 11 patients, 21% um, experiencing serious adverse events including three participant deaths. Now, they were determined not to be drug-related. However, there have been no independent studies. This is what Gilead has claimed. Gilead did the research. Gilead presented the information. Gilead has determined that these serious adverse events were not caused by the drug. Yeah. However, they Just have- Just trust us. We're, we're going to make billions trust us. Right, so they have a serious conflict of interest in telling you whether or not this product is causing injury. The um, Fierce Pharma is reporting that they blew past projections and they um, sales are up to 5.6 billion for the yeah. year. That's, that's more than a typical vaccine would make in a year. Uh, and they're just getting started. No conflicts of interest there, right? No conflict of interest there. and. Let me see if I've got the, well, we've got the, uh, the insert. We encourage, I'll provide those links on informedchoicelaw.org. Um, but it's really important to note that um, I'm going to reach to you just a quote from a study. Again, I'll, pro I'll provide the link to this study that they did an analysis of um, the spontaneous reports in VigiBase. It's the European adverse event drug system, and they found the most reported adverse drug reactions for remdesivir represented liver dysfunction, kidney injury, death, and bradycardia. So for, um, for our, our viewers who uh, perhaps are feeling like they need to do something to treat their kids, let's just say, I mean, there are I'm a busy pediatrician, almost 10,000 patients, not a single patient ended up in the hospital. So uh, this narrative that kids need remdesivir, a very toxic drug that is not ready for use in kids, period. That's clear. Um, there's other options, right, Bernadette? I mean, we know there are other right. treatment options. There are, and you as a pediatrician, um, what sort of things, without giving medical advice on the air, what sort of things do you recommend to parents for, for children, for young children? 
Yeah, well, number one is vitamin D. Uh, so many people are deficient. Basically, everybody is, is not in a optimal range for vitamin D. And getting yourself in an optimal range boosts your own immunity, your innate natural immune system, where uh, it's a very effective anti-COVID measure. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, if a child has a fever, uh, um, you know, we do know that acetaminophen and Tylenol severely depletes glutathione, which yep. is absolutely essential in overcoming any viral infection. So what do you recommend to parents rather than using an antipyretic like acetaminophen? What do you recommend for fever? Well, first of all, don't fight the fever. Fever is how your body helps get rid of the virus anyway. Uh, if you happen to be in that danger zone, say 104, 105, you know, sponge bath, wet, wet, wet washcloths. If you really have to use an anti-fever med, I would go ibuprofen over Tylenol any day. Get acetaminophen out of your cupboard. Some people use turmeric. Uh, there are other natural ways. And acetylcysteine, NAC, actually is the way you naturally boost your own glutathione production. So that's something to definitely consider. All right. Thank you, Dr. Paul. So, you know, I'm going to be putting things together, informedchoice1.org. There will be a post with a lot of this information. It's very concerning that the White House has moved directly into marketing of many pharmaceuticals, directly them to patients. It's very concerning. It's not just remdesivir. So um, we're going to be getting more information for your viewers very soon on, on all of this because we all have to be educated and take action <coughs> with the children. Yep. There's this move uh, that we'll cover on our next segment to have pharmacists immune from liability test and treat. So you can basically just bypass the doctor who knows your medical history, the doctor who's been your primary care, let's say, and you can just bypass all that and go and just buy prescriptions at the pharmacy. Uh, this is a takeover of medicine that is unprecedented. It, it really is. And it, it just seems like it's turning into the United States of pharmacy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Have, there Absolutely. has never been a, a, so visible why we need to separate pharma and state. Yeah. Yeah. We, we need all liability back on all pharmaceutical companies for all of their products. And it needs to be a personal medical decision with full information and fully informed consent. Yeah, I absolutely agree. There we go. Oh, I got to figure out how to stop that. There we go. <laughs> so that was Dr. Paul. Just love him. Um, and I did create, if you go to informedchoicewall.org, there is a post there now. I spent hours today putting that together. Um, and I will be updating that as I get more information. Um, I, mean, I am going to share a little bit. There's a couple of things we talked about uh, regarding, uh, there we go. Let's go here. Let's see if it follows me. So we've got the informed decline. It's called um, did this follow, Javier? Are you seeing the little baby? Yes? No? Hello? I lost Javier. Where'd you go, Javier? Sorry, I just needed to close. There was uh, some noise coming in. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> baby did pop up. And then, yeah, uh, okay. Um, yeah, I'll just tell you um, real quick here that 
You know, there were three deaths in the clinical trial, which is so alarming. And I, I spent a lot of time trying to find out the rate of uh, the fatality rate in hospitalized patients under the age of 18. So far, um, and without having to create the data myself by looking at the CDC's tangle of information. Um, and so far, I only found a rate that somebody had spelled it out in, for 2020, and it was only 0.2%. So that 5.66% fatality rate in the um, in the study is quite alarming, I, you know, but that was early on. So, you know, we need to compare apples to apples, but exactly. it, it really is um, so alarming that they, that the FDA would do this. So we, we've got to protect the children. We have to pre protect ourselves. Um, and as we move forward, um, the only way to change this to change what's happening is everybody to get involved, educate your neighbor, educate your friend, educate your family, and seek out medical freedom candidates and vote. Because we don't want to happen in the United States what's happening in Germany, Correct. where they're just changing things and you've got no choice. Um, right. We cannot let that happen here. And, you know, um, Javier, somebody who's been leading the charge um, of standing between the pharmaceutical industry, the corporate captured public health industry that is captured by the pharmaceutical industry, has been somebody who I like to consider a friend. His name is Larry Cook. And Larry is coming to us today uh, just via audio. So let's go ahead and bring him on. Hi, Larry. Can you hey, hear me? Hey, Bernadette. Yes, I can. Thank you for Hi. having me here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We've had you on once or twice before. And, you know, you're really such an inspiration because, Larry, you began years ago very boldly standing in the, in the truth of your research. You early on looked out there. You saw that there are pharmaceutical products labeled vaccines that were harming children's health. You saw that the science and research of human immunity and the gut biome indicated that children not exposed to some of these products were healthier than those who were exposed. And you dared to go on social media and create websites before just about anybody else dared to say it and just say it. Kids should not be vaccinated. I don't believe in vaccines. And I really admire you for that. Um, silver lining of COVID has been that the whole, um, everything you've been saying, Larry, has been revealed, mm -hmm. you know, because of this huge government overreach. And um, so I, I guess I, I hate to say congratulations, because it, a lot of people have been harmed in this journey. If they would just listened, the harm wouldn't have happened. But I guess I want to say thank you for, for hanging in there <laughs> and not giving up on, on the beauty of your mission. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, and, and I'm, I guess I'm just going to put it right out there. So Javier, you and I have talked about this and, and my teams both in Tennessee and the people who work with in Washington, we've tried very hard to not label ourselves anti-vaccine. We label ourselves pro-medical freedom, pro-informed consent, pro-consumer protection. 
um, pro-scientific integrity in public health policy. But all of those pro-messages are ignored. If you say one thing critical of any vaccine product, you're labeled an anti-vaxxer. No matter how many vaccines you may have been injected with yourself (laughs) or that you got for your children. So apparently the world wants there to be just two sides to this story. You're either pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. So Bernadette's hereby declaring she's anti-vaccine. If that's what it takes, right? I'm still pro-scientific integrity, integrity, pro-medical freedom. You know, if somebody wants to go out there and get it, I'm, I haven't really changed who I am. I'm just saying that I want to flip the term anti-vaccine. Instead of being derogatory, we are going to flip it here and now. Day one, it starts. If you're not anti-vaccine, you're not paying attention. That's what Bernadette's got to say. So <laughs> who's with me? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah. Let's see, Javier didn't jump in there. I'm not sure he's quite ready to embrace oh, that term. No, it's it's just basically there's also there's there's two or there's several different uh, points of view or points of thought. And basically it's, you know, don't play their game. They, yeah. there, there is a real need to make opposition groups. I stand for this. You stand for that. Therefore, yeah. opposition. So yeah. basically, I'm not going to play that game or don't yeah. play that game. It's like, yeah. uh, no, thank you. It is a medical product by a private company, and I do not want it in my child's body. Right. And and that has been um, our language yeah. for a very long time. And I mean, I would say go back, going back more than 150 years. That has yeah. been the language of the people trying to educate. And, you know, at this point, I'm just thinking, let's give it a try. To, let's just make it popular. Just, you know, um, so I get what you're saying. It, there's, just... a, there's a movie called The Hunt for Red October. I don't know if you guys oh. have seen it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so do you remember when the captain turns the ship towards the torpedo that's yeah. coming at him? Yeah. When we think, and what happens? So he runs it towards the torpedo. He closes the distance super fast. Then the torpedo goes past them and then explodes. It didn't arm until Mm -hmm. after it got past them. When we think anti-vax or anti-vaccine, I use the label and I'm all for it because I am anti-vaccine. And I'm running straight towards these evil doers who want to force vaccinate everyone. And I tell them, no. It's dangerous. It doesn't work. It kills children. It yes. kills adults. It maims children. It maims adults. Get it off the market. We don't need it. We never needed it. It never saved us from diseases. And it doesn't work. Get it off the market. It's just toxic poison. So yeah. I, I actually run with the term anti-vax, anti-vaxxer, right towards the <laughs> den of snakes that wants to eat us up. Well, and you know, one of the major problems, this is not like any other pharmaceutical out there because this has full government support. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's not the consumer protection. Those who should be protecting us are actually the ones pushing it the hardest. And, um, I had another thought, but it went completely out of my head. So, Anyway, with, with that said, Larry, your most recent 
project has been to educate people, empower them on how to live a very healthy life uh, without exposing themselves or their children to these products. It's a whole other way of thinking, growing, being, doing. Um, oh, what I was going to say is because our government entities have chosen vaccine as the tool for communicable infection, they do this by ignoring or censoring information about natural immunity mm -hmm. and information about um, healthy immunity, a healthy immune system, so that you can safely experience transient infection, which is what they target. These are these aren't in these are infections you experience for a short time and you're left with superior acquired immunity. But they have to suppress that and they have to suppress the the um early treatment, the development of early treatment protocols. So I mean why why do we even fear pertussis or diphtheria or measles today? It's 2022. We, you know, and obviously we don't, Larry and I and Javier, we've studied um, how to safely navigate these infections, yep. uh, but the rest of the world has not. So when they choose these tools, they, people are harmed because they're not fully informed of the alternatives. And, and go ahead. We might add that the fear of these diseases are only the diseases that they have vaccines for. The other transient diseases, they don't push out the fear for. It's not no. until they create a vaccine that then the fear mongering starts to happen. Exactly. Like, like scarlet fever, right? Yep. Every, you know, scarlet fever was at its height when most of the other um, infections targeted by vaccines were at their height, but with uh, clean water, better nutrition, access to medical care, um, a little bit the antibiotics, um, you know, scarlet fever uh, fatality rates plummeted. It's not that kids don't, I think they call it something else now too. I like the technical term. You don't tend to be said that you have it. Um, anyway, everything becomes survivable, but that, you know, so what you have done and what I would love to share is your first documentary film. It's short. It's just 15 minutes long. So I'm going to share that. And it just highlights, um, you know, a little bit sort of what Dr. Paul's wonderful work, um, has shown. So we're going to go ahead and go over here, go to, um, ba -ba 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 -ba. If I got, whoop, there we go. Sorry about that. Wasn't as prepared. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and give this a play. Let me know if you cannot hear it. And then click the, uh, Sophia. Yeah, I guess we can watch what, it. Larry? Like it's good. Let it, uh, I was going to say, click the, um, the resolution button. button yeah. And the enlarge button, the resolution button, which is lower uh, right. She's my 10 year old. There we go. She has always been very imaginative and really in touch with her body. Like she always dances from the time she was like, could walk, you know, um, she creates her own dances all the time, just improvises them. So she just has this like natural ability and intelligence. I love to dance because it makes me really happy. 
My son, Jake, is eight years old, and he, since the time he was small, has had this amazing ability and like an emotional intelligence. He's able to communicate with adults and children and really get a sense for where they're at and what their needs are, you know, so much so that other adults have commented on how, you know, perceptive he is. My favorite thing to do in the world is build Legos. My son, Quinn, is two and a half, and he has a natural athletic ability. Since the time he was little, he's been obsessed with, like, balls. All three of my kids are healthy. They're loving, kind, sweet, and they're all unvaccinated. You're really trying to get this nice and tight. Let me show you. For the radio listeners, they're making bread. (laughs) That's what you're seeing on the screen. Tuck it. There you go. There you go. That's good. That's good. Slow. There you go. Nice and tight. Our children reached milestones early. And for instance, Sophia started talking like around 13 months. Um, And Jake started writing when he was about four years old before he could even formulate, you know, pen to paper. And Quinn, our youngest, uh, potty trained himself like at two, two years and one month. It's incredible. Hold it. And now, radio listeners, they're cooking. Okay, what are they making there? They're making something wonderful. It's making me hungry. Ah, <laughs> it's there, it's bread. Goes. Uh, goes. Getting the bread. Good job. Twenty-two uh, minutes. High five. Good job, girl. All of our children go to a Waldorf school, and Sophia, our eldest, um, has been there for six years, and she has been excelling with artistic endeavors, and her composition of color and design has been incredible to watch, and her teacher even confirmed that in our recent teacher-parent conference, and that has also led into her excelling in math, and they are moving her up in both categories at the school to give her more challenges, and so we're, we're really excited about that. My name is Sophia. I've been working on art since I was five and now I'm 10. Right now I'm working on a water dragon going into the ocean during the sunset. And you get to see her drawing. And our son, Jake, um, who's kind of following her footsteps, but not with artistic uh, endeavors, but with writing. He has been writing books since uh, he was like five years old. And he comes up with these stories and then he uh, puts them into book form and writes them all out. And her te- his teacher has been uh, lauding his uh, creativity and his ability to uh, convey those thoughts in word and then at story time when he tells the story. So we're, we're proud. He's becoming quite like a little performer. So what was the name of that movie that we made? I think The Matchbox Thief. The Matchbox Thief, that's right. And how many scenes are in there? I think there are like five or eight. Right. So what was the first one I shot from behind you, right? And then Yeah, and then the two corners. You kicked the door in, right? Yeah. And then (laughs) Cool. Wait. I went into the kitchen. Right. And I was fitting through a bunch of things. And then I pulled out uh, a matchbox with gems on. Yep, that's right. 
and Quinn, who's only two and a half, has been following in Jake's footsteps and, you know, building Legos with him and working with him and excelling in, you know, counting already. And he's uh, he's excited to learn. That's what we're really excited about, that we just see him wanting to learn more. He's trying to read already. Um, and it, it's exciting to watch the, the development of him uh, following in Sophia and Jake's footsteps. Okay. Yeah. Blue train sees the sun. Time again it's to done, start done, over. Done, done. Well done, green train. Have fun, blue train. Where is your son? There you go. Yeah, good job right there. My daughter, Sophia, is, um, I, I mean, she's really never been sick. Like, if she does get sick, it's literally like five or six hours, maybe. Um, you know, of resting. And then she's well after that. She had the typical kind of, you know, couple of fevers when she was a baby that, um, you know, I would just sleep next to her in the bed. And she just, you know, we didn't, we just kind of monitored her. We didn't do a lot of, um, you know, medication or anything like that. And then she would see a chiropractor to give her an adjustment. And that usually solved any of those issues and she would get well really quickly. When I get sick, it, it, it's I, I stay in bed a lot. Um, like go to, I stay asleep for some time and I stay home. And then when I feel like my strength back, I'll ask my dad to make me some more food or something. I'll go back in the bed and then like, I might read a little bit and I'm only sick for like, two or three days sometimes sometimes it's like three hours or something i don't get sick that much she's also very engaged you know and present and also is very emotionally intelligent where she's able to kind of resolve conflicts between her friends for example people have called her like an ambassador you know she's just really able to kind of come in and be neutral, but recognize sort of the needs between the two and, and you know, do like conflict resolution. Dude, you can't do that. You can only, if you want three hotels on each platform, you would have to have at least like nine, $9,000. No, no, no. I think she can get it. I think, well, where do you want the hotels? I want the hotels here on Vermont Lake. They're playing Monopoly. I'm sorry, I was caught up in watching the show. You could do these radio listeners. My son Jake also really has not been sick. You know, every once in a while, he'll take like a mental health day from school. That usually seems to be just doesn't want to go. He wants to be here and kind of you know play with his Legos. There's a lot of different types of like sicknesses. Um, but when I got the COVID, it was only for two hours. But when I get other sicknesses, at least one. One hour? Yes. And then what happens? And then I'm kind of just going around the house and bouncing and seeing what I can munch on. See what you can munch on? Yeah. All right, all right. So those are really like the breaks that he's had. He really is a very, you know, healthy kid and always has like energy, just endless energy. Um, he's my little energizer bunny. My son, Quinn, he's just, 
like incredibly strong and, you know, eats like nonstop. He's really never gotten sick at all. He's, he's had like, you know, a fever one night, but it's literally, you know, like a few hours and then he's well after that. Our kids are healthy. Um, they don't suffer from these chronic illnesses like seizures and asthma and ear infections, autism and other, you know, chronic uh, situations that can prevent children from kind of excelling, you know, and our kids bounce back uh, when they do get ill, a cold or a fever, and they get back to what they love doing, which is learning and uh, playing. So we're excited about that, that bounce back. Good job. Way to hold the ball in front of you. Good job. Right? Dad and son are playing catch right now. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> so before I met my husband, um, I had been seeing a chiropractor who was very well educated on vaccine and vaccine injuries and kind of, you know, health with or without them. And he started kind of educating me on that. So I started reading books and really diving deep into that research. Um, I come from a medical family. My dad, my dad was a medical doctor. So he was kind of pro-vaccine, but also had the ability to kind of question the industry itself, um, which I think kind of translated in my world. So when I started doing that research, I really felt committed more and more as I researched that this was the right choice for us. Our kids at school um, have been super healthy and the vaccinated kids that we've noticed, and there are quite a few of them, when they get sick, it is chronic and it continues on and on and on. Earaches, we hear a lot about that, a lot about learning disorders, ADD, social implications where they're not socially integrating. And you don't really... If you weren't looking for it, you wouldn't really notice it. But since we kind of do look for that because we're very confident in our position, you know, it just reinforces, you know, our choice to not vaccinate. If my kids were exposed to any of the childhood diseases, um, chicken pox or measles or whooping cough, I would take them, you know, to see an osteopath and also start them on homeopathic treatment. I would also take them to a chiropractor to have them adjusted because there's been many times in, in my kids' lives where they've had, you know, a little cold or a fever and we take them in for an adjustment and the next day they're well. So I'm going to build some spinning microphones and I think it's going to be pretty cool to uh, show you. So he's there now working with this. His gadget special sound effects now. Doing the science project with sound effects. That's what you're hearing. His experiment. No, my <laughs> children are not a threat to society. Um, their body's ability to overcome disease and create natural immunity makes them healthy, and healthy kids create a healthy environment. kids also, you know, if they were exposed to something and did get a fever or a little cold, I would keep them home until they were well. When I'm in school, what I mostly love is 
being with my friends and form drawings. Miss Megan, my class teacher, she has these wonderful under over form drawings and they're really difficult like swirls and um, squares. And you have to get it just right. Um, and mostly also the friendship with my friends. The way that I withstand criticism from any friends and family that, you know, don't agree with my decision to not vaccinate my kids is education. You know, I'm, I've done a lot of study and really educated myself on the facts. And I feel confident that what I'm doing is the right thing. And I think that my kids are also evidence of that and how healthy they are, smart and loving and engaged and socially intelligent, you know, that they themselves are evidence for what I'm doing is right. And anytime I've ever questioned myself and had any moments of doubt, I look at them and that's the thing that convinces me that I'm doing the right thing. Thank you. And the kids, it looks like they're playing store. Yep. Sorry. They're exactly. buying something. Yeah. <laughs> we did that a lot when my son was little. If you're on the fence about to vaccinate or not, our experience has been um, really positive of not vaccinating. Our kids are super healthy. When they get sick, they recover right away. We're really not afraid of them um, having any sort of massive uh disease coming in. If they did, we know that the body will heal itself. You know, it, we all owe it to our kids to do the best for them. And part of that is understanding what is actually going into their bodies from the food they um, consume to what they're watching and to what medicine they're introducing into their system. And for us, it's been so important for us to really understand all of the ramifications of those. So I would encourage you to really dive deep into it and to find out for yourselves before you just take, you know, what everyone else is doing, because our kids have been super healthy in school. And a lot of the kids who are getting vaccinated, they, when they get sick, they're out for four or five, six days. They have chronic issues. We've avoided all of that. Everything's been avoided. They get sick, they go back the next day, and and that's it. I mean, it's been that that's been an incredible experience, and I, I, I'm very for that. I'm not pink. <laughs> Can I make me into a color? We're, yeah, we're gonna make you. Is that? Red. I think we're at the end there. Unvaccinated children, a beacon of hope for humanity. For more stories and resources, visit unvaccinatedchildren.com. Um, so Larry, thank you so much for, for doing that, that documentary film. Um, you know, you, you did a good job showing the joy and the health of that family and the children. And it, it reminds me though of, um, you know, some rules in writing of that. Nobody wants to read about a happy family in which everything's fine. <laughs> it's, it can be really challenging, can it, to, uh, to present a happy family, um, because drama sells <laughs> drama sells it's true i i did get more traction of course i did have social media back in the day but i had more traction when i shared stories of babies being killed by vaccines and i have a lot of those stories on my other website yeah. so yeah it's it's challenging you know that people like the the drama there's no yeah. drama with the unvaccinated children they're they're yeah. super healthy bright connected and they love life yeah Exactly. And I want to let um, viewers know that on that website, uh, 
unvaccinated children. You've got, oops, anyway, you've got some great resources. You've got some books um, that you would recommend that, that parents read that says, okay, if you don't vaccinate your child, here are the steps you may do and, or, you know, what will you do if your child gets sick? But, you know, even parents who do choose to vaccinate need this information because the products on the market do not, for the most part, um, prevent infection, colonization, or transmission. There's, to some degree, they're all slightly different, but you need to be prepared in any case, um, you know, for what it is that you're going to do if your child does become ill. I may so have, I have, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, so I, so on the website, I have my 12 lesson course. I start mm. with the difference between natural immunity and vaccination. I think that's, that is lesson one. I think it's one of the most important things that parents need to know, because if a parent believes that the infection is more dangerous than the vaccine, they'll still vaccinate. So once a parent understands the difference between the two and why natural immunity is superior, that mm -hmm. that destroys all desire to vaccinate because then the risk of the side effect is too high. Okay. So that's lesson number one. I think lesson number two is the history of uh, vaccination and disease and what really prevented uh, deaths from disease from happening. And then I go into like vaccine reaction and the science manipulation but i do get to like lesson five or six i start talking about how to raise a healthy child mm -hmm. and what to do so i have both net just lifestyle stuff in one of the lessons all the different lifestyle things you can do but then i have then i go into what you can actually do if the child gets sick as well mm -hmm. so i have all of that in there and then i talk about how to be a medical freedom activist and since there are parents who have vaccinated and have vaccine injured children, I actually have a vaccine injury treatment guide in there as well, what to do if your child is vaccine injured and how to recover that child. So it's a very comprehensive lesson, set of lessons. Um, and I put a whole year into it and I had other medical freedom activists and doctors review it. So you watch the video, you're like, hey, I wanna do that. And then you go through my free course. And oh, in the free, free course, course wow. yeah, it's free. You just go in, you just start going through it. And then once you're um, in there, then I recommend books to read. I have additional videos that people can watch that I've uh, created. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very, very comprehensive. That's, and, you, oh, that's what informed consent is all about. You know, when, when the 1986 Act um, passed, Congress was so afraid that giving this liability shield to the vaccine makers was going to lead to trouble, that they insisted that these information sheets be created. And, and in the beginning, they were 12, 10 to 12 pages long. And they, you know, true informed consent requires you to be told not only the risk benefits of the product, but the alternatives to the product. Your, the risk that your child will be harmed by exposure to this infection, the, you know, rate of recovery to the infection, and maybe the benefits of getting wild natural acquired immunity versus limited shorter duration artificial um, protection, right, for a short amount of time. And I once did a presentation, I think it was to the Washington State Board of Health in the early years that I was beginning to interact with them. And I sort of pointed out that we've got this, this, this interesting thing happens where everybody's like, they, you know, they're claiming to be afraid of a child who's never been vaccinated. But let's look at measles. A child who has not received a measles vaccine 
has one window of time in which they may be infectious to other people in their entire life. And it will last just a very short amount of time, maybe 12 hours before they know they get a fever. So they realize they're even sick and contagious with something. Okay. So let's say there's a 10 year old kid never been vaccinated, perfectly healthy, not infected. They're, they're not spreading measles to anybody. And then they're exposed to measles. Well, there's that, that period where, you know, the measles virus might begin to, to replicate. They've got that prodromal period, you know, and maybe just before you get that fever or as you're starting getting that fever and you don't know what you're sick with and you might expose others. That's a very short window. But as soon as you experience measles, you develop lifetime immunity and you are then forever not contagious to anybody. You are a better firewall against measles than somebody who's gotten the shot. And this is proven by all the studies on the measles vaccine, which has a 10% primary failure rate, a 30% secondary failure rate, that's for two shots, and you can't boost it. So, you know, and, and you could go down and look at all of the vaccine targeted infections and look at all the products and you realize that each child only has this really narrow window of time in which they may spread any of these vaccine targeted infections to anybody else because after which if you, do you see where i'm going there the logic <laughs> i know not there um but anyway and you know in the trade-off larry and javier are the you know the unintended consequences of these mass vaccination programs that our government refuses to talk about. And that Dr. Paul Thomas's um, wonderful study that was with Dr. James Lyons-Weiler that looked at his practice, and it shows the rates of ADD, ADHD, um, all chronic um, health issues that are plaguing America's children today are at much higher rates um, in the more shots you're exposed to. And you know, we know, I, go ahead. I can give an addenda, addendum yes. to that. Yes. So I had the largest Facebook group in the world devoted to this topic called Stop Mandatory Vaccination. And I had, by the time it got shut down, I had 200,000 parents in it. If it hadn't been censored, probably would have been 500,000 by the time it got shut down. But the one thing that was interesting is that I had tens of thousands of parents in there that had exactly the same story, which was they vaccinated one child, they didn't vaccinate the other child, and the one that was unvaccinated reached milestones sooner, didn't get as sick as often, didn't got over illness faster, was way healthier, didn't have the chronic health ailments as the siblings did. Mm-hmm. This was across the board. This is what mm-hmm. literally everyone. This is why the CDC refuses to run a vax versus unvaccinated health outcome study. They won't do it because if they did do it and actually publish the true findings of that study, all parents would stop vaccinating. They yes. would just stop. Yeah. That's yeah. why they won't do it. Yeah. And, and that's, we- that's also why I made this documentary. It's actually going to be a series of videos, a series of families, but this is the first one to help mm-hmm. parents understand that these kids are actually extremely healthy and there's a reason for that. There's an actual reason why they're healthy. It's because they're not being poisoned with vaccines, which deplete immune capacity. And when the immune capacity is depleted, that's why these children stay sick longer. That's, mm-hmm. And that's why they get, it takes so long for them to get over illness. And it's also why they're sick more often. 
Right. And I don't know if you noticed uh, all the kids there, they had very symmetrical faces. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's a whole, the, that whole, the whole neurological thing. Yep. Yeah. That's a whole nother topic. That's um, Forrest. Uh, is it Forrest? McReady. Yeah. Yes. He, yeah. he really got into that. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I was thinking the same too. Beautiful skin, healthy glow, bright eyes, symmetrical features. Yeah. A, a lot of. And you saw how I, mm -hmm. how I started with the up close on the child's face mm -hmm. right. in slow motion. That was very deliberate to actually show that off. That was very specific. I mean, I, yeah. that was a vision that came to me on how to do that. Yeah. And there's, there's also this other component that isn't really talked about, but diseases are an important milestone for development uh, of the immune system in children. For a, the longest time, uh, there were so many cases of, of children uh, having, uh, you know, it was known for a long time that, you know, uh, kids that had seizures, if they got, you know, either, um, you know, um, uh, measles or, or, or some sort of fever, that they would actually, that, that would actually eliminate their seizures. And most doctors knew that prior to the introduction of uh, vaccines, um, that they knew that, okay, this is a, a developmental milestone. They need to be exposed to this and that, that'll actually resolve the, the seizures that these children are having. And so Dr. Was, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm done. Thank you. And Dr. Cowan and talks we've about- We've only got like 30 seconds, so make it quick. <laughs> Dr. Cowan also talks about how fever was used to treat cancer and cure cancer until chemo and everything came out. Right. So Bernadette, thank you very much for having me on your show. And if anyone wants to watch the documentary, unvaccinatedchildren.com. Unvaccinatedchildren.com. Larry, thank you so much. And, and thank you for continuing and, on, and all your good work. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Javier and I will be back um, in a few minutes. Uh, you've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. 
high above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. We need a revolution. There's only one solution. I need somebody to show me, somebody to show me love. We need a revolution. Welcome back to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, and with me is Javier Figueroa. Hey, hello, hello. Hey, welcome back. So in that first hour, pretty awesome talking with Larry Cook, who's always leading the way, bold in, in his truth. And I love how he's empowering people to be able to research the other choice, which is to lead a, um, a vaccine-free life for yourself and your children um, and what that, what that entails. Um, but Javier, our guest this hour... Uh, we're going to try to make it empowering and make it hopeful, but um, I, I do have tissue standing by because we're bringing on a very dear man. His name is Scott Shera, and he has, uh, there he is. Hi, Scott. Hi, Bernadette. How are you? Oh, hi. I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. So, um, Scott, you are the father of the beloved Grace. A beautiful young woman who recently uh, lost her life in the hospital. So before we we go on that journey of you telling us what happened to her, I want you to tell us about this beautiful soul that that was in your life for how old was she? She was nine. She was nineteen. Nineteen. Yeah. She uh, she was a beautiful soul. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, she. Um, well, I'll, I want to I want to do something that I haven't shared before because it's on, it's been on my heart. Okay. Um, so, you know, Grace, Grace is the is the motivation for me doing this. I've been on uh, close to a hundred programs so far, and you know, Grace. Grace could love me even when I was a jerk. <laughs> and she just, she had God's hand on her from the day she was born. You know, we named her Grace. We named her Grace after God's grace. And it's because of God's grace that I'm here. And it's also because of my daughter, Grace, that I'm here. I mean, what I was supposed to learn from her while she was alive. Um, I didn't learn completely here. I'm, I'm working on learning it now. So yeah. anyway, I want to just share some, yeah. some fun stuff about her because yeah. otherwise we're just going to get carried away with 
yeah. with all of this stuff. <laughs> anyway, her love for me is what is what motivates me to do this. You know, some of these days are tough, and yeah, today today was a tougher day, and you just got to keep going. You know, Grace never gave up. And so mm -hmm. I can't give up telling this story. I got to just keep telling it so other people don't, they don't die. But Grace, Grace was super high functioning. Grace had Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. I taught her to drive a car. The first time I, I, uh, I taught her to drive was when she was 13 years old. I had a big three quarter ton diesel truck at that time. We got over to one of the properties that we have for hunting and, we got there and I said, Hey, Grace, you want to drive? And she said, yeah. So I got her in the front seat and uh, got the seat all the way up. You know, she's probably only, she, she was probably only four foot tall at that time. So she could barely touch anything, but she, she did a great <laughs> job listening. And so we, you know, get her in there. And so I said, okay, now, you know, you've seen dad drive. You know, so put your foot on the gas. And I taught her, then she hit the brake the first time. You just about go through the windshield. And, you know, then she got used to it. She did great. So then, you know, then it dawns on you as a dad, you know, what did I just do? Because, <laughs> you know, because you process, you know, you start thinking ahead. I know, oh my gosh, she's going to tell, she's going to tell my wife. And then I'm going <laughs> to be in trouble. Yeah. And so now we have about an hour drive home and I, I practiced the whole time with her. Grace, don't tell mom, don't tell mom. <laughs> you know, we weren't in the house, we weren't in the house a half a second. And she said, dad, let me drive. <laughs> of course i'm in trouble for a whole week after that yeah so i mean it, my wife taught her how we homeschooled grace my wife taught her how to read and write um and she she uh she was a comic i thought mm -hmm. one of the things that we may do is do stand-up comedy someday and i would you know be be her sidekick you know she if she met you for the first time you know she would she would say something like uh um, you know, hi, hi, beautiful Bernadette or something like that. She always Aww. had a way of complimenting. Yeah. And uh, then she, she would start, she would maybe ask you, uh, she said, she might say, uh, can I tell you my two dirty jokes? <laughs> then, of course, I mean, you can't resist. And she, she would tell you, um, do you know why the toilet paper didn't cross the road? And then you'd say, well, no, I don't know. Why didn't it cross the road? And then she'd tell you because it was stuck in the crack. <laughs> oh great and then she would, do, she would tell you the second one she'd say um, have you read the book uh, under the bleachers and of course she'd say no i haven't read the book and she'd say well do you want to know who it was written by and you'd say well sure who was it written by and she'd tell you seymour butts oh, <laughs> <laughs> so oh you just dear. had that she just had this way yeah uh, you know she she uh life was an adventure with her but mm -hmm. we just never knew where what what stuff was going to happen she when she was uh, i think she was 13 maybe 14 she wrote a letter to priscilla presley elvis's wife kara graceland she became an elvis fan oh. i don't remember exactly why but i mean she knew she knew elvis trivia like nobody i know and uh so then she writes this fan letter and unbelievably Priscilla Presley calls her and invites us to Graceland. So we go down, to, we drove to Graceland and met with her. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, this stuff was, it was, seemed to be constant. 
with mm-hmm. with her the stuff that would happen you know everybody would just instantly fall in love with her and it's happening mm-hmm. now today i mean mm-hmm. so just pro- who, who who gets this i mean i'm 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 just a dad i start doing these podcasts and pretty soon tom renz wants to interview me <laughs> and yeah. so then it, he gets done and he invites me back for another interview and all we do for an hour is talk about grace and then he's now he's jumped on helping us with the with the legal piece of this. Mm-hmm. You know how does that stuff happen? Yeah. I, yeah, just she was she was a gift, a, a gift from God, from the angels, and I feel like she's with us still. There there is something about some children that come onto this earth, and they may be considered having special needs. But there's this love about them that is the best of humanity. And they they do bring out our best. And I love how you started the show talking about how she loved you even when you weren't maybe your perfect self. And yeah. um, I, oh my goodness, I so get that. Because, you know, as parents, right? I mean, we, we turn over and over in our heads the things that we did wrong, you know, <laughs> and uh, bless the kids for loving us anyway or and, well, um, I mean, I I would as I, I uh, in, in one interview I did for uh, with Mickey Willis, I he asked me about what I did as a dad, and I just said, you know, I did a lot with Grace as a dad, no doubt, but it, I would score myself about a C minus as a dad. But mm-hmm. you know what? I'm going to get an A now. <laughs> I'm sure she felt you were always an A. I mean, you know, you look up, I always tell people, you look up the definition of mother or father in the dictionary and it says guilt, you know, because we just, (laughs) you know, and, you know, each child doesn't come with their own instruction booklet, right? You got to figure it out as you go along. Everyone is different. Um, Just when you think you got it figured out, you have another one. And you have, you have other children. I know you, I know about one daughter. Is it, do you have other children? We have Jessica. Uh, She will be 30. She's going to get me for this. She's listening (laughs) right now. She's listening right now, I think. So she, she will be 32 coming up here. Oh, that's a baby. baby. I'm old enough to be her mother. So that's enough. (laughs) um, My son, Travis committed suicide three years ago in October. Uh, just so about, um, uh, he committed suicide on October 9th. Grace died on October 13th. So was in that you know so it's almost three years to the day apart I am so sorry you know and that's probably a whole other maybe burden and show that we could go into that discussion because that is a huge um suicide is claiming the lives of too many young people today and uh, I'm sorry that you have that extra burden on your heart there my dear I'm reaching out with a hug through this um through the airwaves jessica and my wife cindy have put together quite a tribute to travis that we're going to have up on the website i sent all the stuff to the website designer now to get get up he's working on it now so there will be a special section on grace's website dedicated to her Mm -hmm. and travis together did she have a good relationship with travis oh yeah it was it was great yeah. Yeah. Uh, even you know, when, especially when when Travis was in the the teenage years after he started driving, he would he would take Grace with him. You know, so Grace Grace was our last one. There was quite a gap in between. So we were thirty nine. We had uh, decided to let God lead in that department, and that's that was how Grace came about. I mean, mm-hmm. and so we got the miracle of Grace by being obedient to 
to our Lord and, and look what mm-hmm. happened. Anyway, yeah. when she was when she was younger then, so Grace was born in 2002. Travis was born in, in 88. So they mm-hmm. were 14 years apart. So, you know, when Travis was 16, 17, and he could take Grace when she's three or four, and, you know, she was like a little chick magnet for him. Because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. she's just a little cutie, you know, to... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, um, I appreciate you now moving, you know, on to the difficult part of our conversation, but I know that you want this story told because you want to uh, protect others who may be in similar situations um, and you want to make change. And the way to do that is to share the, your story again. So, you know, where best to begin this journey of what happened to Grace. And as I as I walk through this, please interrupt with questions. I, I know the story very well, and okay. I'm very comfortable being interrupted because as the questions come up, it's hard to keep them all to the end. So okay. I, I just I want you to just have that freedom to interrupt as I as I ramble through this. Okay. So I'll just start with we were on the frontline doctor's protocol even before Grace got COVID, meaning that she was on all the vitamins uh, because we were we wanted to be fully prepared. And we we assumed at that point that any sniffle would be COVID because things were really running um, in high gear relative to COVID last October. And so we Grace got a, a sniffle, we think around September 28th. We just thought it was a cold, but we instantly got her on ivermectin. And we really didn't think anything of it. We thought we'd walk right through COVID. Um, we tested Grace on October 1st with a home test because we wanted to go to a wedding. And we just thought we better test her. You know, she was, it was just a cold. So other if she didn't have COVID, we would have just went to the wedding. And she tested positive. Again, we didn't think anything of it. And then October 6th, she couldn't maintain her oxygen above 90. She was in the 88% range. And so we saw that as an emergency, you know, looking back now, it's one of the things that, that we've learned subsequent is that if you have low oxygen, it can be an emergency, but when you go to the hospital, if you go to the emergency room, don't check into the hospital, uh, check out of the emergency room and then they will prescribe oxygen and a steroid for you and if I would have done that, if I would have known then what I know today, Grace would be alive because that's what we would have done. So we went to the urgent care on October 6th and they did some blood work. Ultimately, she had a high D-dimer, which is a a blood chemistry parameter that they use to measure clots that um, gave them the recommendation to take Grace to the emergency room, which we did. We took an ambulance ride to the emergency room. I rode in the ambulance with Grace and um, she was of course fine, but the, they did the CT scan that came back negative. And then the emergency room doctor recommended that we admit Grace to the hospital. Uh, She really didn't expect it would be a long time. And I, at that point I said, well, I'll be uh, staying with her. And that was the first objection that we that we received. And they said, well, you can't. I said, well, what's the reason? They said, well, we don't allow patients or uh, we don't allow visitors in a COVID room. And I said, well, then I'll be taking Grace home. 
And after about two hours of deliberation, they came back into the room and said, we decided you can stay. Oh, come on. And so, of course, in hindsight, I wish yeah. they would have said, take her home then, because yeah. she'd be, again, she'd be alive today. <laughs> so we were in the emergency room about 10 hours. Uh, we got in the, the regular room uh, approximately midnight on October 7th. Uh, my attitude at that point was was really fine. I just assumed it was going to be like a mini vacation with my best buddy and uh, we'll be out of there in three, four days. And the first day was a, was just like I expected. Uh, they had a great menu. We could order anything we wanted off mm-hmm. the menu and uh, we watched some movies and you know, it was just it was just great. So um, I will ask you at this point, um, did you bring with you any of the protocols, any of the nutrients or the ivermectin to the hospital? Did you continue the protocols in the hospital? I did. I I had brought uh, not only Grace's along, but mine, because I assumed I would get COVID while I was in there. So I had I had everything. And, you know, I, I felt the, you know, when I started talking with the doctors, they they were all negative on ivermectin uh, in their reports they called basically we're calling us fools for following what they called was the frontline doctors misinformation campaign. And so based on that attitude I saw, um, I was giving Grace Ivermectin without them knowing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I had everything. So there's no reason to not give it to her. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a complete dummy, but you know, I still was, was uh, trapped to the white coat. So you know, another thing I want to get out before before we get too far. So one of the take home messages is, uh, you know, don't check into the hospital with low oxygen. This story, of course, is way bigger than COVID. Yeah. And so I want to also explain. So when we start getting into was this intentional and things like that, you're going to come away with this realizing um, I shouldn't go to the hospital unless I have a bone protruding from my arm or leg. And I believe in general, that's true. But all of us at some point in our life are probably going to end up in a hospital. And what I would tell you is check out, vet the hospitals in your local area before you end up in the emergency room. Because when you're in the emergency room, you that isn't the time to figure out if they've been uh, bought by the government or not. And I don't mean legally bought by the government. <laughs> I mean, practically bought by the government because the government is controlling the hospital's protocols. And yeah. If they've been bought that way, uh, you your chance of survival is exceedingly low. Yeah. We did have AJ DePriest on the show. Oh, great. And so you know who that is. And she's done oh, a sure. deep dive on the federal money pushing um, the mandates, not the mandates, but pushing the protocols. Which are proving to be harmful, but but what the doctors gave to your daughter was above and beyond. It wasn't just remdesivir and venting. It was there was more to it. So you cool. you go ahead on. Yeah, in fact, she was not given remdesivir or a vent, uh, which really makes our so our story is unique for a lot of reasons. Grace had Down syndrome. We were in the room other than forty four hours, and she didn't have the typical protocols. Um, she, she died of a completely different protocol and all, and, and, and a methodology to do it, which I think that, uh, God allowed us to be in that room to expose this. I don't, I think Grace's case is the first one they've been caught. 
So that's what I've come to the conclusion on. And this is going to become the norm. What they did with grace is going to become the norm. It's already the norm in the UK. And it's going to become the norm in the country unless something changes that. So when you say it's the norm in the UK, and of course, listeners who don't know your story don't know the details of what we're talking about, but you mean for individuals with Down syndrome or developmental issues that there that there is this intentional trying to yeah. end the life of those who um, they they feel are I can't even say the word. So. No, it's right. The, there's, you know, so I've come to that conclusion that there's a genocidal agenda for okay. the disabled and the elderly, and they're already using end of life meds. You know, the 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 comfort care meds along with ill along with DNRs. In Grace's case, they did an illegal DNR, but in the UK, the government's already given them permission to put DNRs on people without their permission. Mm-hmm. And so we'll get into those details and people, you know, you, you, this story has a believability factor to it. And that's an important piece. So, you know, your listeners are not going to know me. And so mm-hmm. you can, you can judge in your own if I'm a whack job or whatever you want, but that's one reason we put the the research on the website. I have yeah. well over 500 hours of research and mm-hmm. I put everything on the website because as we, I started talking and realizing, you know, people are not believing the story because it's too out there. So mm-hmm. then we put all the research on the website so that after you hear me talk, go check it out and mm-hmm. you'll see. I mean, I have original documents. Uh, I have uh, supporting evidence for every single thing that's mm-hmm. that's on there. And the things that are speculation, I've called out as speculation. But just to give you uh, an example, the research is now coming out relative to covid and, and the disability death. So uh, in the UK, a disabled female in the hospital with COVID was 11, statistically now, they've already been putting the statistics together. It's 11 times more likely to die in the hospital of COVID than a non-disabled female. Wow. So what's the reason? You know, disability is not a, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, pre-existing condition to dying no you know it's a no. pre-existing condition to genocide is what it is yeah and that's uh your website is our amazinggrace.net. yes yes our amazing grace.net okay uh, so yeah, I don't remember where we're at exactly. So we, okay. Yes. I remember. Okay. So we're on the first day. Yeah. And so, I mean, we just had a fun time uh, toward the end of the, you know, bedtime, Grace started to get pretty agitated with, they had put her on what's called a high flow cannula. And I think that anybody would have got agitated. So I don't think this had anything to do with Grace. This thing is shooting air up your nose at 40 miles an hour. And so she got agitated. Uh, I worked with two of the nurses for about two, three hours to get her situated with then a BiPAP mask. You know, and if we jump ahead to the research that we did after Grace died, the fact is Grace had a CPAP mask at home for sleep apnea. And that's mm-hmm. really all she needed. And she was comfortable with that. You know, there's no reason to have her on any of this other foolishness. But at that time, I saw oxygen as key. And mm-hmm. it, oxygen is key. I mean, without oxygen, you don't live. But the the I, I saw it as too important because I was uneducated. So 
this becomes significant the next morning. So the next morning is October 8th. A doctor came in at eight o'clock in the morning and said, you're going to need to put your daughter on a ventilator in the next two hours. And I said, what is that recommendation based on? And he said, we did a blood gas draw the night before. And those numbers show she needs to be on a ventilator. I said, what time did you take the numbers? And he said, 1130. And I said, I don't think those numbers are objective because of what I just told you. And Mm -hmm. I was watching Grace's stats at that time. I said, at that time, just based on what we just got done doing with this BiPAP, Grace's blood pressure was 235 over 135. And her heart rate was 150 beats a minute. So I said, I want you to retake those numbers, which they did. And Grace was fine. So we Mm -hmm. dodged the ventilator bullet at that point. And so this, and again, this mindset, I just want to explain this. At this point, I knew nothing about ventilators other than when COVID first happened, I think President Trump unknowingly got everybody buying into that ventilators are a piece of the puzzle to solve this. Because remember, we had a ventilator shortage. We're converting factories to make ventilators. So when I went in, I thought, well, I mean, this is just a piece of the puzzle. But then I asked him, what's the prognosis if Grace goes on a ventilator? And he said uh, less than 20, or he said about 20% of people uh, walk out alive on a ventilator. So I dug into that. I had my laptop in the hospital. I dug into that and found out, you know, that's not, that. you know, that was even high. It was substantially lower than that. And in fact, most people that walk out alive on a ventilator die within the first year from damage the ventilator that has been done. So we made a decision at that time, Grace is not going on a ventilator. And that did not stop them from asking. So this time he had what he thought was evidence to back up the ventilator. Four more times we were asked for a pre-approval or pre-authorization to use a ventilator just in case. And just in case was always couched in some some version of these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when you can't get a hold of the family. And so what was what was going on? And I found this out afterward when I researched the the money trail with ventilators. You know, a ventilator ends up as about a three hundred thousand uh, dollar profit to the hospital. And so, of course, their push for the ventilator is financially motivated. And so, you know, thankfully we were, I wasn't wise to the money trail at that time, but we knew we weren't going to do a ventilator. So every time they requested it, we said no. The next day uh, was October 9th. Um, There's so many significant things, but I'm just trying to hit the high point so you get a Mm -hmm. sense for what's going on. But October 9th was a fairly significant thing because it set the table for Grace being malnutrition, number one but it also set the table for um, a distrust. And, and it also showed me how they, how they convinced the family to get their loved one on a ventilator. So what happened was Grace was hungry. Grace couldn't feed herself in the hospital. Of course, Grace could feed herself, but because she had a BiPAP mask on. So I ordered food, start feeding her. The nurse comes running in, says, you can't, you can't do that. I said, what's the reason? And she said, because Grace's oxygen saturation is only at 85%. And so I started processing that. You wisely asked that I have my COVID materials in the room earlier. And I did. In fact, I had my own oxygen meter. So I put it on Grace's finger and it read 95%. So I called the nurse in and I said, 
is my meter accurate? She said, yes, it is. I said, well, then why is my meter reading 95% and yours is reading 85%? And she said, because the leads get sweaty. And so then I said, well, if that's a known fact, why don't you proactively change these leads out every three to four hours or whatever it takes, since this is the primary measurement you are using to manage my daughter's care? And she snottily responded, you should just be thankful you caught this. Come on. After Grace died, I got the bill that they sent to Medicaid, and they only changed out those leads three times during Grace's seven days. So what does that translate to? So now we're watching the the oxygen, myself and my daughter Jess, when she became the replacement. Grace's last day, 15 minutes before they gave her the lethal dose of morphine, her oxygen saturation on our meter was more than 40 points higher than what the oxygen, the oxygen, the hospital was reporting. So why is that significant? I'm, you know, I have enough evidence here to throw the, you know, the book at them and, you know, bury the key so they can never get out. I mean, whether that ever gets exposed or not is a, is a different animal, but the, the reality is that, if you get a call that Uncle Joe died and now you get the hospital records, you see, well, they put him on a ventilator. So then you ask, well, why'd you put him on a ventilator? They will have their records so tied out because they'll have the oxygen at the level that justifies the ventilator. Right. And what I'm telling you is that they can arbitrarily lower those numbers because they don't care. Right. That's exactly yeah. it. And that's been my experience with hospitals too. I've had two friends die from just things that should have been routine. They didn't do, or they misapplied medications. So it's, it's inexcusable. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely inexcusable. Uh, the next day was Sunday, the 10th. Um, uh, uh, the head nurse came in with an armed guard at seven o'clock in the morning. She said, you need to leave immediately. And I said, what is that based on? She said, you've been shutting off the alarms at night. And I said, yes, I have. The nurses trained me how to do it because they're going off 20, 30 times a night. And oftentimes it's 20 minutes to, to get somebody in there. And so, I mean, why were they going off so much? I mean, you can't make this up either. So the first night they're going off, it seemed constantly to me. I asked them, can't you make these alarms go off in the nurse's station? No, we can't, which is a direct lie. I was, I went to the hospital And I I think God orchestrates these things just for this reason, so that I can credibly tell this story and I know what good care is. And I know because I went to the hospital three days after Grace died with symptoms probably three times worse than her. I just about died the first night. So maybe it's 10 times worse. I mean, Grace never came close to dying until they killed her at the end. So what they did was so different. It was completely opposite. And so like these alarms... You know, they they said, what would you like to have happen? I said, I don't want any alarms to go off. I don't want anybody coming in and checking on me in the middle of the night unless I push a button. They they said, no problem. Um, with Grace's case, so I asked, why, why are the alarms going off? She's, they said, well, they go off every time she moves her arm. I said, well, what's the reason they go off every time she moves her arm? Well, you can't make this up. So you see the crux of my elbow right here. They said, well, we put the, the IV in, in the crux of her elbow. So every time she moves, I said, well, why'd you do that? Well, that was the easiest place for us. I mean, it's like, oh my gosh. 
So then the, this brings up the second reason she said they kicked me out is the last, she said the last three shifts of nurses don't want you in the room. Well, no kidding. I mean, it just taped. I mean, I just told you stories. I mean, I, I could probably tell you another 20 stories of bad care and I was challenging this stuff. So of course, don't, you might as well kill the messenger because you can. Um, and then third, which is laughable, they said, she said, we suspect you have COVID. Well, no kidding. You're the ones who told me I was going to get COVID. I mean, it's so dumb. Uh, and mm -hmm. if you were really concerned about it, why didn't you ask me? I tested myself at one o'clock on the seventh, the first day, because I had a fever already. So I tested myself. I was positive. I mean, of course, you're going to get COVID. You're sitting in a room confined with somebody that's got COVID. You're going to get it. No kidding. Um, so anyway, I, I don't want to go on that point anymore because it's so minor in the scheme of things. But we ended up then without an advocate for 44 hours we ended up having to hire Grace's special needs attorney to negotiate with the hospital to get my daughter Jess in as a replacement. Cindy couldn't come in at that point because she had COVID. So mm -hmm. then once Jess got in, well, what is significant during that 44 hours? So if you go back to October 9th, they started Grace on a sedation med called Presidex. So this is so bad. Presidex is is an anesthesia drug that's only supposed to be used for three hours. The package insert says no more than 24 hours. So this was illegal. They started her on it before her last day. She was on it four days. During the 44 hours that we were not in the room, they increased the dosage seven times. Oh, geez. So now Grace get, or Jessica gets in the room. So remember, I'm telling you these facts. You know, I know these facts. Why? Because I studied the records and I've got it all on the website. So Jess now gets in the room, has the same experience I had. So in spite of the fact that Grace is now sedated. So mm -hmm. she had already been, when Jess gets in on October 12th, Grace had been sedated for three days, but Grace was still herself. She mm -hmm. was just, a, you know, she just was a great kid. So at bedtime, Grace, and this is the night of her last day. She sits up in bed. Grace, Jess has her sit up in bed. They call Grace's nephews, Jess's two boys, and Grace hollers, at, you know, through the BiPAP mask. She hollers, waves at them, "Hi, boys!" Mm. Uh, yeah, she just. Mm. And Jess will tell. Jess tells the story better than I do. So Jess never wanted to let go of Grace, so she she slept in a chair and put her head at the end of the bed where Grace's butt was and, and Grace was tooting. So she was apologizing. <laughs> She's apologizing oh, no. to Jess for tooting. Oh. And, you know, Jess, Jess monitored her, her oxygen through the night and she was at 98, 99% the whole night. Mm. Now we get into Grace's last day, which is, this is so horrific. So, you know, it's, I get, but this is what I got to tell. We built everything up to this last day. <laughs> so the doctor called Cindy and I at eight o'clock he wanted to have our decision on the fourth request for a pre-authorization for a ventilator. He had called the night before and we told him no. And so then he said, well, Grace had such a, a good day yesterday. We should put a feeding tube in and okay. you got to you know, remember the reason she needs a feeding tube is because they didn't feed her. I mean, so it's, it's, it's crazy, but you know, we still were believing in the white coat. So we foolishly approved the ventilator and you'll see how, or not the, not the ventilator, sorry, the feeding tube. Mm -hmm. So you'll see how that comes into the story now. 
so then Jess wants to, she, no, there's a four, this is really critical. There's a 14 year ICU nurse who was in charge of Grace's care that day, her last day. And this is when you start wondering, was this an accident premeditated? This is a key fact that it's a 14 year ICU nurse. So now Jess wants to take a shower. So she says to this nurse, I'm going to take a shower. Remember when I was in the room, they wouldn't let me leave. That was a condition. With Jess, they said, you got to go home and take a shower. Jess thought she's going to be there for three, four days until Grace could get out. So, so she buzz home, take a shower. Of course, if you know Grace is going to die, you're not going to take a shower, right? But So she comes back inside of an hour. She's overhears two doctors and this 14-year ICU nurse in the hall say the family's not going to like this. So she says, what aren't they going to like? And they said, well, we had to restrain Grace while you're gone. What does restrain mean? means strap her down to the bed. So she says, what's the reason? And it's, they said, well, because Grace wanted to go to the bathroom. They made her poop in the bed. Oh. So just think this through. Uh, one of the attorneys we're working with asked me after I told that story, he said, Scott, do you think you would have been strapped down? I said, no, I would have told the nurses, you've got to help me and you know take my IV with me and help me into the bathroom. But Grace, you know, I look at Grace now as she was obedient unto death. One of the people who interviewed me said, Grace died a martyr's death. And I think this is an example of Grace being obedient unto death. And I think that's one reason God is opening up these doors that he keeps opening up for us. Uh, because, you know, he wants this story out. And <clears throat> so now they use that as an excuse to ratchet up precedent. Remember, Grace is on precedent every four days. Now they ratchet up further. Now the next thing that happens is the two nurses, the 14-year ICU nurse and the assistant are now charged with the feeding tube. The assistant says, I think we should wait for Grace's numbers to rebound. She won't listen. No, we're going to put the feeding tube in now. So they put it in. They take the precedent up to max dose. 1048 in the morning, Grace is at max dose Presidex. So now Jess says Grace was basically out of it. Of course you are, because remember what this is. This is an anesthesia drug for surgery. So this right. is what knocks you out before surgery. So they knocked Grace out. Okay. So that's not enough. At 1125, they gave her a dose of lorazepam, which is an anti-anxiety med. So yeah. if you're knocked out, do you need an anti-anxiety med? Again, I'm, I'm no. framing this. I want you to judge to think, is this intentional or not? Okay, 14-year ICU nurse, anti-anxiety med when somebody's already knocked out. At 546, they gave her another dose of lorazepam. Three minutes later, another dose of lorazepam. And then 615, a two milligram dose of morphine as an IV push. The package insert for morphine says specifically to not do that because it right. causes death. Those are contraindicated drugs that if you put them together, it causes death. And it says also specifically, you're supposed to have the reversal drug bedside and monitor the patient. They did none of that. Once they delivered that, once that 14 year ICU nurse delivered that last dose of meds, they never stepped foot in the room until after Grace died. Just started feeling Grace was cold. And so she asked that 14-year ICU nurse, is this normal? Can you come and take a temperature? She says, it's normal. Just put a blanket on her. 
Oh, come on. I'm not joking. Uh, this is, you know, we have contemporaneous records that we, we transcribed, Jess and I, so that we made sure we captured all of these details from our perspective. Because, you know, you start wondering after this, you know, how are these doctor's records going to come together? And, you know, thankfully we got them early before they could be changed. And, you know, we, we put together the, the details, but it gets, it get, actually gets worse than this, if that's not bad enough. So now Jess called Cindy and I on FaceTime at 720. And she said, dad, Grace's numbers are dropping like crazy. I said, get the nurses in. And she said, I've been trying. They won't come in the room. So Cindy and I start hollering, save our daughter. They holler back. She's DNR. Do not resuscitate. And we holler, she's not DNR. Save our daughter. We find out through Tom Renz's help, he got a medical malpractice nurse involved reviewing the same records I reviewed. She got done reviewing them and she said to me, Scott, there's at least a thousand pages missing. So I said, how do we get them? And so she helped write another request. So we got 948 missing pages. That's where we found that the doctor put the DNR order on Grace at 1056 eight minutes after the max dose Presidex, one of the attorneys who reviewed it said they must have expected they were going to be able to take her out with the, with the Presidex. So they wanted this DNR order on her. So now we, Cindy and I watch Grace die on FaceTime seven minutes later at 727. During that window, Jess runs out into the hall to find out what's going on. The nurse had it right up on her computer screen. She read it to Jess that, the doctor ordered a DNR and we can't do anything about it. Oh, come on. This, this sequence of DNR situations violated seven or eight, depending on how you read this, the Wisconsin state statutes. It was completely illegal, but all this stuff was illegal that they were doing. But you got to remember how these, these hospitals operate. They have immunity under the PrEP Act. And so they can get away with this stuff. And it's near impossible to to win a malpractice case. I talked with the best malpractice attorney in the state of Wisconsin, and and he told me this. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, let me share an example, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how hard it is to win a case. He said, I had a case where the doctor sewed up a sponge inside the patient, and we lost. I said, well, how could you lose? He said, we brought 10 expert witnesses. They brought 100 that said that, that can be accidental. In Grace's case, we have subsequently found out that the there has to be a uh, when when these meds are ordered uh, a um, the doctor has to approve it then the the um, software that they're using will send an alarm because this, these are contraindicated meds so he's got to override that alarm and the the pharmacist that's on staff has to sign off so just think through how many people had to be in on this to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So now just to finish up that story, then you can ask as many questions as you want. So then um, I take Cindy to the hospital. I couldn't come in because I had COVID. Her and her and Jess cleaned Grace up. Our pastor met us there. Uh, the funeral director met us there. And after everything was done, the pastor walked Cindy out in a wheelchair and one of the nurses had Grace's belongings. And 
she had him on a cart and she leaned down to Cindy while she's pushing the cart and said, me and several of the other nurses don't think Grace should have died today. Wow. So that was, uh, you know, really a, a gift to hear that because that allowed us to then, you know, start proceeding as if there was something going on here. And then just informed us later that evening that uh, there was an armed guard posted outside the room. You know, we don't know why, but I presume to prevent the nurses from coming in and saving grace. And I say that with a degree of confidence because of the fact that Jess laid with grace in the bed and held her after she died. And, you know, for 20, 25 minutes till Cindy could get there. And that armed guard stood outside and watched her the entire time from the nurse's window. Wow. This is just, I mean, it's like a, a bad movie. Um, I wish it was a movie. I'm sorry that you, you lived it. I am kind of speechless, Javier. <laughs> um, the, what, what is amazing is that um, the, 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 the fact that there are doctors that are willingly doing this is, is, is chilling to a degree I, I can't even fathom. And that the fact that good nurses had to go behind all those people and speak directly to you and did not feel that they had the power to step in and say, this is wrong, we can't do anything about it, is, yeah. is one of the most frightening things that I've heard uh, and seen in the past 60 years that now hospitals are now considered grounds for actually choosing who lives and who dies. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. that is a piece of this story that I you know that is is so egregious, and I don't want the listeners to think it's an anomaly. No. Uh, this is this is becoming the norm very very quickly. Mm -hmm. And Grace died in a hospital that was part of the Ascension Hospital System. More than 140 hospitals are they're one of the big players in the United States. Okay. So this would be running rampant in that whole system because it's coming from the top down. You know, I estimated that um, they received over $3 billion in bonus payments in the first year of COVID. I have a slide on that on the website called The Love of Money. Um, in Grace's case, on that same slide, you'll see uh, I broke down the Medicaid bill. So yeah. Grace, they were because we denied the ventilator, they were only receiving $1,680 a day. For Grace's care. And I personally have come to the conclusion that that's why they took her out the last day, given how, how well she was doing the day before, because we rejected the ventilator for the fourth time. When you look at the love of money slide, um, that slide was put together in four hours. God got me up at three o'clock one morning and I put that whole, it's, it's probably 40 hours of research, but when he's behind you, you can Get <laughs> you can't believe the stuff I found. That hospital was at maximum. This was all available research online. It was mm -hmm. at max capacity the day Grace died, and the it, the emergency room was also at max capacity. So connect the dots. Mm -hmm. When when Grace and I were were in the um, emergency room, we waited ten hours for a room to open up. So what were we waiting for? We were waiting for somebody to die, mm -hmm. and. Great! It was Grace's turn to die that day, so that they could get somebody 
that was a higher paying patient to come in. Of course, that's speculation. That's my personal belief. But, you know, there's enough stuff that have, has happened. I, I filed complaints against the, the state board that regulates the hospital and the state board that regulates the doctor. And if you look at all the research I have on the tragedy tab, I sent all that to them, plus, plus, plus stuff that's not there that I'm keeping close or we're keeping close to the vest yet. And they came back in both cases, they did investigations and, and both the hospital and the doctor did no wrong. So could you possibly think if you're on an investigative team with what I just shared that they did no wrong? No. So th- what does that tell you? That tells you the government is in on is in on this whole thing and they have hired the hospitals to do their dirty work. Anyone looking at the medication she was anybody taking what they gave her would have died. It would have killed anybody. Yes. yes. The doctor who helped us review the record, she is once she saw everything put together, she even said, and I have her quote right on, on in the tragedy tab. She said, it's not even a matter. Uh, she said it was intentional. There's yeah. just no yeah. way it can't be intentional. Yeah. Lorazepam and morphine combination are known to cause uh, respiratory, respiratory failure. It's, it's guaranteed. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, you just don't do that, especially after you give an anesthetic and then to lower the body temperature like that. Normally, you actually put people in heated blankets in order to, to maintain the body temperature. Yeah. This is this is unconscionable, and you know, unfortunately, it's happening to to regulars becoming systematized to such a degree that it's people are just taking it as granted. And yeah. I hate to say it, but the medical education system has failed because they're not teaching the first rule, which is you have to be ethical, you have to uphold yeah. your oath first yeah. and foremost. If um, I have a Hippocratic Oath slide on the website also, and then I documented all the violations of the Hippocratic Oath in Grace's mm-hmm. case. You know, this mm-hmm. it's it's become, you know, you think, holy cow, what how did you do all this? Well, it be, it's become a full-time job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not a job though. I mean, it's I it's a gift to be able to do it. I'm thankful to be able to do it. I'm humbled by doing it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, God is you know it's it's a, a lot of adrenaline and a lot of coffee but you know god yeah. is uh, god is helping me walk through this yeah um th- there's a saying that you know the system's uh broken it needs to be fixed but i heard years ago somebody flip it around he said the system is fixed it needs to be broken <laughs> i it like needs that to be broken taken apart it just, it cannot stand as it is. And, you know, the gift of grace and even the gift of COVID in the tragedy is revealing the systemic problems that have existed for a very long time and have been getting worse and worse and worse. And tragically, it has taken so many experiencing um, what you went through, what your family went through, other families have gone through. It has taken this, all these tragedies for people to finally see. And once you see, you can't unsee. Once you see the corruption, once you see the ultimate goals, you see what's happening, you can't not see. And you you never go back. Now, the, the people who trust 
the hospital systems, who trust the white coats, that side of the planet is shrinking. You, you know, nobody ever goes from experiencing something like this to, to going back to saying, oh gosh, I was wrong. I trust them. They're doing the right thing. You know, it just doesn't happen. You become an advocate, you know, and well, that's what's uh, happened here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You become an advocate and bless you for doing what you are doing, bringing grace to us. I feel like she has graced my life now. Um, you know, I, back when I lived out in Washington, we had dear neighbors that had eight children. And one of them was, I don't remember her issues. She was in a wheelchair, precious young child, um, Angelica, and we called her Kiki, loved her. She was such a joy to the whole family. Just, it, she lit up your heart. Um, and she didn't, you know, she, she passed, you know, to the angels um, at a fairly early age. But her life was not a mistake. Her life was a gift. And so I've experienced a little bit of what your grace likely gave to your family, gave to the world. And she continues to give, right? Like you said, by her going through this and, um, and what you're doing. So um, are, is there a way for people to help and support? Like when we go to your website, in what ways is there a way? Do you need financial help? Do you need, what sort of help do you need to continue on with Grace's, uh, this mission to reveal the systemic issues? So we haven't made any formal requests for money yet. There is a give, send, go on the website. People have been sending money uh, both via the give, send, go. Our home address is on the website too. And there's a tab called uh, how can you help? Uh, you know, eventually, you know, we've been using our personal money so far to fund this. We've got billboards up. Um, so it's, it's, okay. it's fairly expensive, but I mean, that's, our whole estate was going to grace. I mean, you can't take it with you. So I don't, <laughs> I don't care if we spend every last dollar on this. That's what we're going to do. But you know, eventually, we're going to run out of money. So, yes. So yeah. Well, sure. well, we'll tell the community. Uh, what's the website again? The Amazing Grace, ouramazinggrace.net. Yeah, I believe that the connection has frozen and the music's telling us it's time to go. Well, bless you, Scott, and your family. Bless Grace from the angels you've been listening to an informed life radio at 11 50 a.m kknw we'll be back next week during this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable we've also learned that it's unnecessary treatments exist and always exist for 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at healthyimmunitynow.org. That's healthyimmunitynow.org. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? 
If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today.